Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to Special Edition. A weekly look at the issues in the news and the personality shaping the stories. Special Edition is a production of Intercom Communications. Welcome to Special Edition. I'm Paula Dagnan. This week, we're going to start off by meeting U.S. Attorney for the Middle District of Pennsylvania, David Freed. He talks about sexual harassment in public housing and what you can do about it. It's something that U.S. Attorney General Jeff Sessions has been discussing with U.S. attorneys across the country in getting the word out about what can be done. Dave, let's start by having you give us a little bit of the background of the sexual harassment in public housing. Uh, you would think in this day and age that things like that don't happen, but obviously if you're here to talk about it, they must be pretty evident. Sure. Na- nationwide, uh, we, we've had uh, complaints, numerous complaints of sexual harassment in public housing. And, you know, sometimes it involves loan officers, sometimes it's maintenance workers, it could be a property manager. Uh, and and uh, I'd like to say it's surprising, but in a sense it's not because often, uh, you know, our, our fellow citizens uh, who, who are in public housing, uh, like everybody else, you know, working hard, uh, want to be left alone in peace to raise their families in, in, in a safe environment. Uh, but sometimes they, they're in vulnerable situations. You know, often we have single mothers uh, who are in, in uh, tough economic situations and, and difficult family situations. Uh, and in any type of crime, uh, often folks who are willing to perpetrate crimes know how to pick their victims. So uh, in one sense, uh, there's a, a ready-made set of, set of victims sometimes in public housing. And that's where we've seen that problem around the country. There have been enough complaints uh, from, from around the nation that this is one of the priorities of this Justice Department. Uh, you know, reducing violence, reducing crime uh, certainly uh, are at the top. And, and really, this does go, go right along with that because we're talking about uh, you know, sexual harassment, threats, sometimes assaults, uh, quality of life issues, quality of life crimes that, that we're seeing all over the country in public housing. It must be very difficult, though, because, again, as you just said, that you have these vulnerable victims who are afraid, especially if they are in charge of children and their income level might not be enough where they can make this kind of a decision. What would you suggest to someone who might find themselves or know someone who finds themselves in that position in order to, so it doesn't become a you said, I said kind of a situation? Well, they have to make sure that they, they to the extent they can, and it could involve just keeping a list, you know, keep a record of, of, of anything that happens. If it's, if it's uh, just harassing behavior, if it's, if it's phone calls, 
uh, if it's uh, you know failure uh, to do work uh, in the residence un- un- unless the, the the tenant agrees to do something. You have to keep track of all of that. You know, I was a I was a county district attorney and, and a state prosecutor in Pennsylvania for a long time, and and this issue in one sense is a little bit like domestic violence because uh, you have vulnerable victims. Uh, who are often afraid to come forward because they're concerned that coming forward will put them at risk, put their families at risk, put their housing situation at risk. It's exactly what we see in domestic violence. What we want uh, the folks in federal housing to know is we're on top of this and, and we're here to help. So uh, if they make the report, they can call the number. Uh, they can go to the website. Uh, the number is 844-380-6178. The website is fairhousing at usdoj.gov. Uh, you know, we have people on this specifically uh, that will protect their interests and make sure they're not retaliated against. I think retaliation uh, is, is a big fear, and we understand why that is. That's why we're trying to be public about this and let people know we understand this is going on and we want to help you. We want you to bring this forward. One of the other things, too, again, when we're talking about such an issue, you mentioned the DOJ is on top of it. Well, as soon as you start thinking about, well, here I am, I'm in this situation, and now in order for me to go a step further, I'm going to have to talk to law enforcement or this person or that person, and now I'm really opening myself up. So there, and you don't feel like there's any assurances that somebody's not going to just brush you off under the carpet. I can understand that completely. Uh, it's difficult. I've worked in government for a long time. Uh, and, and one of the rules I always had uh, and still have in my government office is when somebody calls in, we don't transfer calls around. If, if they have happened to call the wrong office, we find out uh, who they're trying to be talking to and we make that connection for them. Uh, and, and people need to know that they're going to get service. That's what we're here to do. You know, taxpayers pay our salaries. Uh, we're here to serve the community. The, the, this. Uh, Department of, of Housing and, and, and Urban Development understands that this is an issue around the country. Uh, there are people who are specifically trained to deal with, with these issues. Uh, and and uh, we can't do anything about it if we don't know about it. We're certainly willing to do that uh, if, if folks are able to come forward. And, and there are numerous examples. Uh, we haven't had any cases finish here yet in the Middle District of Pennsylvania, but there's numerous examples around the country. I can think of one from North Carolina uh, recently uh, where people have come forward with these issues and, and, and have been vindicated. And one of the important things to know is there's a lot of people doing this right. There, there's a lot of folks who... Uh, provide uh, subsidized housing and run subsidized housing, and they're doing it exactly right. But in the places where it's where it's not being done correctly and, 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 and people are being victimized, we want to be able to help those folks. One of the things that you just mentioned was uh, nationwide. And a lot of times we don't think here in northeastern Pennsylvania that we sometimes have the same problems as nationwide. But the other interesting thing is you also said the Middle District of Pennsylvania. What area are you covering? That's a great question. So the Middle District of Pennsylvania, is, it's big mm-hmm. uh, ge- geographically. We're the 33 counties uh, in, in the middle of Pennsylvania from, from the Maryland border up to New York. Uh, and then it takes a little bit of a right turn uh, over into northeastern Pennsylvania and the Poconos. So if you think about it, looking at a map of Pennsylvania, it, it's essentially everything – uh, except Philadelphia and the Lehigh Valley, and then sort of the western third of Pennsylvania. So we've got 33 counties, a uh, population of about two two and a half million people uh, in, in those counties. 
And so it's a, you know, it's a diverse it's a diverse place. But uh, if you think about, especially some of the more urban areas we have here, city of York, city of Harrisburg, Wilkesbury, Scranton, Williamsport, uh, you know, we have plenty of uh, federal housing there and in other places and subsidized housing. Uh, I I have to say, based on my experience, I've been doing this this sort of job for more than twenty years. Uh, I'd be shocked if it's not going on here. Uh, a lot of things that happen in, in the Middle District of Pennsylvania uh, are the same things that are happening around the country, just maybe at a different level, because mm-hmm. uh, we are blessed with a lot of natural beauty, a lot of rural areas, and we don't have some of the urban issues uh, uh, throughout most of the district that, that you see in big cities like Philadelphia or Chicago. Uh, but what everybody else has, we have, it might just be on a smaller scale. Uh, and and, and uh, I'm excited about this this opportunity uh, and and I'm happy that the department uh, has authorized us to get out there and talk about this because I believe this issue of of discrimination and harassment in housing is going on, and we want to be able to help folks who, who might be suffering that. And just to uh, remind our listeners that we are talking with U.S. Attorney for the Middle District of Pennsylvania, David Freed. And again, when we're talking about the, the, we are a diverse area. And they're just here because you mentioned Williamsport, you mentioned Harrisburg. Those are so far away from here and we have so much. How can things like that be happening here? And then again, at the same time, so many of the outside elements are starting to make it into the more rural communities. Would you say that that is almost now opening Pandora's box where we're going to find that a lot of things, as you mentioned you would bet that it's going on everywhere, including here, but no one ever knew about it before. Sure, uh, you know, throughout this district, uh, we we have great quality of life. You know, from the extreme southern end, I, I live down towards the the southern part of the district in the Harrisburg area. You know, all the way up to the New York border and over into the Poconos. You know, there's a lot of people who want to locate here mm-hmm. um, because uh, we have natural beauty. Uh, it's 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 just a nice nice place to live. Uh, we also have, uh, and I know you know we can, we can talk all day long about the state of Pennsylvania's roads, uh, but we have a, <laughs> and not my department by the way, <laughs> as as United States Attorney, but we have um, incredible transportation infrastructure, and that brings us a lot of benefits. Uh, I, I I frequently uh, drive throughout the district and and see the the huge warehouses and and the logistics businesses that are going on you know the, all, all up route 81 and, and across route 80 uh and the turnpike and and you know we've re- we've reaped a lot of benefit in this area from that but because we have that great transportation infrastructure uh we have uh just incredible amounts of of, of goods traveling through here uh, on a daily basis. And as part of that, we have a lot of drugs mm-hmm. and a lot of contraband uh, coming through here at the same time. By the same token, uh, you think the world has gotten a lot smaller. Uh, and and, and you know, we've seen people move here for quality of life. Uh, and as population grows, uh, problems grow. I don't know that, that, that crime rate uh, in the district as a whole uh, has increased a lot. You know, violent crime goes up and down. Violent crime's up a little bit. But when you have population increases in certain areas, everything's going to increase. Need for services is going to increase. And, and, and crime, even if the rate stays the same, you're going to have more. Uh, and, and I think that's, that's what we see. So when you have population, you have the problems that, that go along with it. 
Uh, I don't think we're, we're certainly not worse than any other area. We're probably better than a lot of them. Uh, I know what drives most of our business in the U.S. Attorney's Office, and it's drugs and violent crime. Uh, but all the benefits that we have from being where we are, there are some negatives that go along with that too. Uh, you know, when you speak of, of, of the, the, the drug issues, uh, you know, this country's in, in right now. Uh, an unprecedented crisis as it relates to heroin and opioids. Mm-hmm. Um, We're I, seeing it. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, We're living we see it. it. Yeah. And, and uh, I'd be surprised if there's anyone out there who hasn't been touched by it with at least, if not a family member, uh, a, a friend of the family or an acquaintance uh, who's who's been touched by this crisis. Mm-hmm. Uh, I certainly have. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, but where we are in particular, our, our geographic location, uh, we're, we're just inundated. Uh, I saw a report recently from, from the DEA. They do, they do street buys of, of heroin, and then they analyze it for purity and to see where it comes from. Uh, and purity just really means power. The more, mm-hmm. the, the more pure it is, the more powerful it is. So uh, the, the purest, and, and for price also, the purest and cheapest heroin in the United States comes from the city of Philadelphia. Oh, very Which close, is very close to where we are. Two hours, and and other cheap, pure uh, repositories are New York, North Jersey, Pittsburgh, Baltimore. So yeah. so we're absolutely surrounded by it. We're in the middle, uh, and and we've got it coming in from all directions. I was with my colleague from the Western District of Pennsylvania, who's who's based in Pittsburgh. Last week, we were at a meeting of a controlled substances subcommittee of United States attorneys, and and the folks there were the people that you'd expect. The folks from Kentucky, Ohio, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Vermont, Maine, the places that have really been hit hard uh, in this crisis. And, and certainly a part of that's demand, and, and, and we as a society have to work on the demand. You know, this is a crime problem and a public health problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're doing a lot on the crime side, on the public health side. There's work that needs to be done here, too, you know, to impact that demand. Uh, and we're doing everything we can to impact supply, but we are right in the epicenter of that. And, and that happens with, with not just drugs, but, but everything else. Is that why public housing then sometimes gets a bad rap? I think it is. Uh, yeah. And, 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 and uh, I don't think it's deserved. Uh, I, I've said often, and I've you know, pulled different stats and, and, and quotes out of the air, air, but you know, if you're, if you're talking to somebody who, who, uh, lives maybe back mountain area or mm-hmm. something and they say well you know that that area of of, of maybe downtown city wilkesbury is that's a bad neighborhood they might say or, or pick some i don't want to pick on wilkesbury but pick out no. you pick out a neighborhood in harrisburg exactly okay, say hey you know uptown harrisburg's a bad neighborhood somebody in, in in my area where i live might say and i say to those folks i've, I've been dealing with people who live in these bad neighborhoods uh, for my entire career. And, and the vast, vast majority of people in the place that you would call a bad neighborhood are good law-abiding citizens who just want to be left alone to raise their family in a safe environment. And, and so I think neighborhoods get bad raps. I think public housing gets bad raps. Look, there, there's, a, there's a lot of people uh, who reap a great benefit from it. And, and if we've got stable housing for people, uh, that means that's one less thing they have to worry about. Their kids are more likely to go to school. And when kids are more likely to go to school and, and the parents can be satisfied with that and then the parents can go to work and know their kids are safe, everybody's more likely to stay out of criminal behavior. I've been involved for many years with a group called Fight Crime Invest in Kids, early learning investments uh, for kids, you know, get kids into into uh, Head Start and Pre-K 
things like that. And it, it, it's shown that um, those early learning investments not only keep kids out of crime later on, uh, it makes it less likely that they're going to be crime victims, and it keeps families out of crime. And, and so solid, uh, safe, reliable housing is one of those things that does that. So if someone sees that there is something illegal that's going on in their public housing unit that they're living in, Mm -hmm. do they contact you first? Do they go? Because a lot of times, sometimes they can get frustrated by going to local police because, again, they're inundated as well. So what would the steps to take and then your number and the website for the maybe the last resort? Right, so there there should there should be management uh, at, at the public housing that they can go to, and look if there's a crime that they've seen, they have to go to local police first, uh, and and especially especially if it's a crime that they've observed or they've been a, a victim of a crime, but if there's ongoing issues, uh, certainly uh, the 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 phone number to contact is eight four four. Three eight zero six one seven eight. That's eight four four three eight zero six one seven eight. Or you can go on the web. Almost everybody has a smartphone now. Fair housing. It's all one word at usdoj.gov, and the resources are right there. And tell them that U.S. Attorney for the Middle District of Pennsylvania, David Freed, said, "Contact us." That's right. Uh, and you can tell them that Attorney General Jeff Sessions and U.S. Attorney David Freed said, uh, "You're supposed to help us out." Thank you once again to U.S. Attorney for the Middle District of Pennsylvania, David Freed, for joining us to bring us information on what you can do about sexual harassment in public housing. The U.S. Attorney will also be joining us again here on Special Edition in the near future. He'll be updating us on law enforcement and just how close local officials do work with federal officials and most of the time... We don't even realize it. Now don't go away. There's more special edition to come. Welcome back to special edition. Thanks for joining us. Next, we're going to meet Kathleen Smith. She is the regent of the Shawnee Fort Chapter Daughters of the American Revolution. She's going to tell us about what they do here in our area, in particular in the Wyoming Valley. Let's have you explain, because I think a lot of people hear the initials D-A-R. But when you say D-A-R, it means what? Daughters of the American Revolution. And what does that mean? It stands for, it's short for the National Society Daughters of the American Revolution. It's a national society that was organized in October of 1890 in Washington, D.C. And the first local chapter was actually organized in Pennsylvania in 1891. So we, we, Pennsylvania got started in DAR six months after the fact. So what is the purpose of the DAR from the 1800s to 2018? It's essentially the same. It's, we we um, promote patriotism, historical preservation, education, but now it's a lot different because we no longer wear um, white gloves, hats as much. We, we were what you call today's DAR, like after here I'm running to work. <laughs> In 1890, they had things, they were... The wives of doctors and lawyers and such, and 
They had servants. And if you go to downtown Wilkes-Barre, the campus, all those grand houses, mm-hmm. that was pretty much the local DAR. That's where a lot of them live. So these were women. The women who gave back to the community and, and was very, very um, pro-historic preservation even back then. I guess the thing that I think about is when I hear D-A-R, American Revolution, people would think that it was connected with a war effort. They did support the war efforts through the years. They supported, they were very influential in supporting World War I. But these are women and myself, and my daughter just joined. She just turned 18. We trace our lineage back to the American Revolution. Oh. Our patriots either served in the military or supported the war effort by providing goods or services. Uh, some some women are descended from judges and other influential members of the community mm-hmm. at the time. And if you can prove like that, trace your lineage, you can join the DAR. Oh, so wait a minute now. This brings us to a whole different topic. What is Kathleen Smith's lineage that gets her into the DAR? I joined the DAR in 2002 through a man named Daniel St. Clair. He was in Fisher's Ferry, Sunbury area, and he was in the Battle of Paoli. He was 16 at the time, and he lost his most of his fingers on his left hand and his left eye. And he actually had served under the British and came over. And from what we can gather, he was captured and given a choice. You either switch sides or you're done. Oh. So he chose the right course of action. <laughs> and he switched sides. So was he a relative of yours? He was my ninth great-grandfather. Oh. So you were able to trace this. This, this is almost like it's a, you're getting a twofer. You're finding out about your family heritage, and you're having, and it, it sounds to me like it is very prestigious. We don't discriminate against race, color, creed, sexual orientation, anything like that. I mean, you have to be a woman. But you do have to have, I guess that's where I'm a little confused. You do have to have a lineage? You definitely have to prove your lineage back. Okay. And I've done it five or six times. Wow. We have, I have five or six relatives, but, but, um... Some of my patriots were captains. Some were uh, drum majors like Daniel, who was 16. And some just served and paid taxes. If you paid the supply tax in Pennsylvania or, or taxes locally, you were eligible because you supported the war effort. Ah, okay. So there is, there is a connection to the war effort. Now, you said your daughter is 18. Do you have to be 18 to if become a 18 member? 18 is the youngest, and it goes up until... Um, there's people that I know that are over 100 years old in it. Then, then the history they must bring. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You were mentioning downtown Wilkes-Barre, and the, a big part of the, um, the DAR and your group is preservation. Correct. And it's throughout the Wyoming Valley, not just Wilkes-Barre. Right. So what are some of the places that you have been involved with when it comes to historic preservation? Well, what we like to do is we do cemetery cleanups. Shawnee Ford is big, and we mark a lot of Patriot graves. You may recognize uh, we've done Jesse Fell in Hollenbach. We've done, we just did Benjamin Carey in June. He's in Hanover Green. And that's, incidentally, the oldest cemetery in the area, one of the oldest in the country. It predates the United States. It was founded in June of 1776. Where is that? Hanover Green. Hanover Green. So Hanover Township? Hanover Township. It's right above 
the Sansui. Oh, okay. And is it a working cemetery today actually, as well? Absolutely. They actually still do burials. That's See, you're bringing a whole new aspect of when people drive past these different places. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of the other things you're also involved with is historic restoration of buildings? Correct. We are very heavily involved in the restoration of the Zebulon Butler House in Wilkes-Barre. We're working closely with the Wilkes-Barre Preservation Society with Tony Brooks. And we actually helped save it from demolition. Um, Tony got a call that it was going to be torn down. Mm-hmm. So a few of us were around the clock, literally around the clock, standing guard. Not literally standing guard, but <laughs> like watching the bulldozers so they wouldn't get too close. <gasps> and we also helped raise money to purchase it for the Preservation Society to purchase it. And now we just did a fundraiser at Rodano's. And we just presented the other day a check for over $1,200 to the Preservation Society for the house. So if someone is in the immediate Wyoming Valley area, and there are so many things out there that people don't realize have historic value, I'm sure you've run across that. Mm-hmm. How would they go about getting in touch with you and, and coming along and saying, Kathleen, I heard you and I, I think I have something, but I'm not sure. What would you do? I would say contact us on our public Facebook page, Shawnee Fort Chapter NSDAR. And then I would also recommend going to the Wilkesboro Preservation Society page because a lot of what we do with the Preservation Society is on there as well, along with walking tours and other historic things that are, are going on in Wilkesboro. Around uh, holiday time, you have different walking tours that you do, especially for uh, Halloween. I don't do them. You don't do them. A lot of times the Historical Society does it, and a lot of times Tony does it. Right. For the Preservation Society. But it's, it's again, it's one of those things where if people want to find out about the history of Wilkes-Barre, right off the top of your head, what are some of the other places that people pass every day and may not even, like that cemetery in Hanover, and may not realize what some of the, you said the Zebulon House? Now, where is that? Zebulon Butler House. It's on South River Street, and it's actually the office for the Preservation Society. But it was not never on Butler Street. It was never any other type of house. It was the Zebulon Butler House, and, and Zebulon Butler was actually the, the leader of the Connecticut Army in 1778 during the Battle of Wyoming. And he actually built a log cabin, and then in 1793, he and his son, Lord Butler, enclosed it with a the house that you pretty much see today. <gasps> And it was moved in 1868 by the family. Can and that's you, the only reason it really survived. Can you imagine moving a house in 1868? I can't. <laughs> that's incredible. Well, we're talking about so many of these different things. And um, you mentioned Tony Brooks because he does do and get involved in all different kinds of restorations and renovations. And you have something coming up where people are going to have an opportunity to hear him speak and also find out more about you what is the event we're very excited to have a world war one luncheon coming up in october it's october 20th at Genetti's, and this year is the 100th anniversary of the end of world war one and tony's going to speak about asher minor who was leader of the 109th during world war one he's a very influential name locally as well it's it's a luncheon that we want to honor the world war one veterans and also celebrate the 100th anniversary of the signing of the armistice. Do you have any World War I veterans that you are going to be able to honor there? 
I do. I've, I've actually put it out to my members to include their patriots, their, their veterans. And I also have my great-grandfather, Thomas Cochran, was in the ambulance corps. And from what I can understand, all the ambulance training was done in, at the Allentown Fairgrounds. Now, he was originally from, like, California at this time. So he had to go to Allentown, which is where he met my great-grandmother, who lived in Allentown at the time. So, And what year was that? 1918, my grandfather was born. And again, imagine traveling to Allentown. So even, it was it was a long time before the turnpike. Right, right. <laughs> so how do we get the details about the uh, the upcoming luncheon? If anyone knows of any World War I folks who, or if they would just like to attend themselves. You can go on our public Facebook page again. But, you know, and you can give me a call. It's 570-704-9809. And you said it's October 20th? October 20th. But you need reservations by October 6th. And it's going to be uh, Tony Brooks is going to be there speaking on Asher Minor, who led the 109th during World War One. And indeed, we do need to have the uh, reservations. The reservation deadline is October 6th. Where did you find out all the information about your family? My sister actually had wanted to join the DAR. And I'll probably get in trouble for saying this. I said, why in the world do you want to join a group of old ladies. <laughs> I said, what in the world would you, you know, I, I couldn't understand it. She was dead set on joining. So I said, all right. And then she was unfortunately killed in a car accident. Oh. And so. Before she got to before, join? Before she even really did a lot of the research. She was 19. And so I did the research just to see what it was about. And I figured if she wanted to do it, let's look into it. Get my mind off things, you know. And so I just, I contacted the local chapter and I joined. But then in, in 2009, I, I broke off from the local chapter and I started Shawnee Fort. You started this. We st- yeah, I started it with, we, we organized with 12 ladies. And what does Shawnee Fort symbolize? We're named after Fort Shawnee, who, which was in Plymouth in 1776 or so. And then it burned down a couple of times and they have yet to find exactly where it was. But what they used to do is they used to take the public into the fort to protect them from Indian attacks and things. In Plymouth? In Plymouth. Indian attacks. And it, you have your Facebook page, and give us that one more time. Shawnee Fort Chapter NSDAR. You can also Google us or give me a call. You can find us on the, on the Preservation Society page as well, Wilkesboro Preservation Society. Get a hold of Tony. He'll get in touch with me. It's not hard. I'm all over the place. And indeed she is. That's Kathleen Smith, regent of Shawnee Fort Chapter, Daughters of American Revolution. And a reminder that the World War One luncheon is going to be coming up on October 20th at Genetti's in Wilkesbury. And the reservations must be in by October 6th. If you'd like to find out more, you can find Shawnee Fort Chapter NSDAR on Facebook. Now, don't go away. More special edition coming up. Welcome back to Special Edition. Tom Jesso Sr. and Steve Condrad, President and Vice President of the Shawnee Cemetery Preservation Association, have details on an upcoming event. Well, 
our organization is to preserve and restore uh, a historic Shawnee Cemetery in Plymouth. We started the organization in 2008, and we have uh, o- over 500 members on Facebook and about 200 members, uh, paid members, throughout the United States. And the president didn't travel without his vice president today. <laughs> Tom said you've got so many people on Facebook so where is the cemetery located, and who would be a, a member of your organization? Now, the cemetery is located on West Mountain Road in Plymouth. And members of our organization um, vary. They are descendants of people who are buried there and people throughout the community. You have some pretty powerful people that are buried there from way back when. We do. Um, Some of our more notable people are George Palmer Ransom, who was a uh, Revolutionary soldier. Also, Abram Nesbitt fought in the Revolutionary War, as did Philip Shupp. And we have veterans there from every war, from the Revolution right up to Vietnam. Wow. That's That's a lot of people. Tom, tell us about the event now that you have coming up in October, and this in itself is kind of unique, although you have done it for how many years now? Well, this is our fifth year that we've been doing the uh, Walk for the Forgotten Unknown. It's a fundraiser we do once a year. Uh, We did move it up to twice a year, so so we have another one in February. And it's just to bring awareness to uh, the, the people in the cemetery, you know, that sacrificed so much for us, our uh, community and our nation. And now they're forgotten after 148 years. Uh, families died out, moved away, and there's nobody to take care of them. And we have over 400 veterans uh, interned at the Shawnee Cemetery. And it's just sad to see their uh, grave sites uh, taken over by Mother Nature. Mm-hmm. So uh, we're all volunteer, nonprofit organization. And uh, we depend on uh, businesses and uh, the community to help support us in uh, donations for equipment and uh, the tools that we need to preserve and restore this historic jewel. What happens at this particular event that you have coming up now? And when is it? Uh, The event is on Saturday, October 6th. uh, And it's going to be held at the Goodwill Host Company, number two, Bizarre Grounds and Host Company Grounds uh, in Plymouth, on West Main Street in in Plymouth. And from 1 until 4? From 1 until 4, Okay. So it's not at the cemetery? No, it's not at the cemetery because this year, um, with all the amount of rain we've been getting and the terrible mosquito and bug problem, we decided to maybe make it more convenient for people to move it someplace downtown. The cemetery is located... Um, up above Plymouth, actually, uh, on the mountainside. And the roads are paved with gravel only. So it's, it's difficult for older folks um, to come and walk around. And also, um, the grave sites may or may not be in good condition to be able to walk around. So we felt that we could, we could reach out to a larger audience if we held it in a more convenient place. What's going to happen that day? It's going to happen. It's going to be great. That's going to be just <laughs> well, great. Well, I can tell just the two of you being there is going to be the <laughs> highlight. <laughs> no, it's, it's going to be great. We have uh, our time travelers, our, our alter egos, the, the Shawnee time travelers, are going to portray people from the World War I era. 
and talk about different things that they experienced and how the war impacted our own community here of Plymouth and Wyoming Valley. Now I'm really confused. Now you're all confused. Now I'm we'll, all we'll confused. Okay, please do, because these time travelers, where do they come from? We don't know. Oh. <laughs> Through time, no. Uh, seriously, they're... Um, Members of the organization, of the cemetery organization, and people from the uh, uh, board members from the Plymouth Historical Society, too. It's, it's something we do. Um, requires a little bit of research to find out something about people from the past and sort of take you back to, to that particular time. We're going to get there on October 6th, and there are going to be the time travelers coming from way back when, and are they going to serve us lunch? Are they going to talk to us? Are they going to do a dance? What happens with these people? Well, the tickets include uh, a male. When we dress up in periodic costume uh, for the uh, events, so it depends on you know what event you know what, what time period that we're falling to that we dress up for. Where do you get such uh, things? Have, oh, it's uh, it's it's a hunt. Thrift shops mainly and eBay, but we 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 we're not. I wouldn't say we're exactly historically accurate in our clothes, but it's sort of a you get the idea type thing. And we talk about different people depending on what the event is. This year we're focused on World War One, so I'll be talking about something. I don't know if anybody really has ever heard of the Four Minute Man. No. Now we've heard of the Minute Man from the Revolutionary War, but this is a totally different thing. The Four Minute Man were, there was actually 75,000 spread out throughout the country. And they were volunteers that went around um, and sort of, I would say, sold the war. The war was not an easy thing for people to want to be into. So they helped to promote the sales of liberty bonds, uh, food conservation, the draft, and victory gardens. And these people, they called them Four Minute Men because they generally spoke at movie theaters. And somebody had figured out that it takes about four or five minutes before they changed reels. So while they were changing reels and you're gone to the concession stand, they would get up on stage and give their spiel. Oh, so they didn't actually see battle. Oh, no. No, they were volunteers here. Ah, uh, Some okay. of the more famous ones was the actor Douglas Fair Fairbanks. Now, why do I think that Tom is going to be portraying Douglas Fairbanks at the event on October 6th? <laughs> uh, Tom's actually going to be talking about one of his relatives fought in World War One. Please do tell us. Well, my Uncle Charlie, he, uh, he took us in when I was a baby. Uh, my mother uh, uh, was divorced, and uh, we had nowhere to go, and he took us in. And we lived with him. You know, I lived with him all of my life. And this was here locally? In Plymouth. In Plymouth, okay. And uh, he was in World War I, and he was also a miner at the Avondale. A lot of the World War I uh, soldiers, when they came back, they, they came back and went back into the mines. So you're going to be portraying him? Yes. That's wonderful. Do you have anything authentic from him? Uh, no, not really. No? Just the uh, memories? Just the memories. Which is even we, better. We used to have the memories of uh, the dynamite and his lunch pail uh, in the closet there in the hallway, you know. Well, we've we've had a lot of news stories about people finding things in their closets and wondering what they are and how they got there. Yeah. So this sounds like it's going to be so much fun, and it's going to help you raise some money? Yes. Absolutely. Uh, the, the Shawnee Cemetery, we we do our work 
from the support of the community and donations from businesses and and such like for our equipment and for the road repairs and uh, the restoration that we need done up at the cemetery. Uh, it costs a lot of money to run a 13-plus acre cemetery. Oh, I bet it does. And there's over 15,000 graves that uh, nobody really wants to claim, mm-hmm. you know, except uh, families that are living close by. Wow. So it doesn't take long for Mother Nature to take it over. And with this rain this year, uh, it's proven it because mm-hmm. we haven't had a chance to get in there and cut. It rains one day, and next day if it's dry, it doesn't take to, uh, long enough to dry it out to cut. And then you sink. We know that just from our own yards. Right, and then we just you know fall back again. But we do catch up eventually, even if it's in December. <laughs> you know, we're we're still there. It's a three hundred and sixty-five day year job. Well, it's a good thing that you can take at least one day out of the year in order to have something with a lot of fun. So, Steve, I'm going to give you the final word here. Give me the the date, the time, the place, all of the information uh, that people, I know you said you have a Facebook page. What me would too. Where would people find that? And let us know all about the, uh, the event that's coming up. <laughs> it is on October 6th. That's a Saturday. And it's located at the Plymouth House Company number two, the Goodwill House Company. That's right on West Main Street in Plymouth, right at the corner of Nottingham and West Main. It will be from 1 till 4 p.m. And event cost is $15, which includes food. And the food is going to be all homemade. The phone number to call for tickets is 570-406-1238. Children 12 years and under are free. Okay. So it's a kid-friendly family event. Now on Special Edition, Intercom's Webster and Nancy catch up with a doctor who has a brand new book, not only about heart health, but heart history as well. Sandeep Johar. Director of the Heart Failure Program at Long Island Jewish Mm. Medical Center, author of Doctored and Intern, and you also write for the New York Times. So Uh, The book, uh, your new book is called Heart... Uh, history, And, you know, I was reading some of the, the notes about this, and there's really some fascinating things going on here. I guess the average heart surgery can take 10, 12, 13, 14, 15 minutes, and the heart can only withstand a couple of minutes. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, the heart is uh, actually unique among the organs in the body in that it was, it was never operated on until the late 19th century. You, you know, even the brain kidneys, liver, everything had been operated on in the body except the heart. And the reason for that is, you know, is pretty clear. The heart is always moving. It's beating. So you can't really cut into something that's moving all the time. It's also filled with blood. So if you cut it open, you'll bleed to death. If you stop the blood flow and sort of isolate it, then there's no blood flow to the brain and you get brain damage. So these were the obstacles that that scientists and, and doctors were facing um, you know, in the early 20th century, and and um, and one of the techniques that I write about in the book is when a mother uh, is pregnant, mm-hmm. she provides blood to the to the fetus. Mm-hmm. So one of the doctors, a crazy surgeon, one of probably the most innovative surgeon of the 20th century, a guy named Lillehei out of Minneapolis, said, "Well, why don't we hook up a a parent to their child, just like a mother is hooked up to a fetus during pregnancy, and have the parent's blood." circulate through the child's blood and a child's system and, and isolate the child's heart and cut it open and repair it 
while the parent's blood is oxygenating the, the, the child's body. So this is one example of the many crazy things that doctors and scientists had to do just because the unique properties of the beating heart. While we're talking about this, uh, it has been quite some time, hasn't it, that uh, the number one killer in the U.S. Uh, is uh, heart disease, right? Heart disease has been the number one killer for the entire last hundred years. In fact, the only year that it wasn't was uh, in 19, uh, I believe, 18, when influenza killed more people. But otherwise, heart disease has been the number one killer. So it naturally is of interest, you know, how to live with our hearts, how to understand our hearts, how we've come to our understanding of the human heart. All that is, I think, of interest to everyone, and that's why I wrote the book. Oh, that was pretty fascinating, too, and I'm looking at the numbers here. It says about 3,000 Americans receive a heart transplant each year, but uh, roughly 4,000 are on the transplant list, and it says perhaps 10 times that number would benefit from a transplant. That's right. I mean, there are probably 20... Uh, 30,000 people um, who would potentially benefit from a transplanted heart. fact is that the number of transplanted hearts has stayed relatively constant over the last, uh, you know, 20 years or so. The, the reason for that is uh, that, you know, people are wearing seatbelts, okay, and, and there are speed limits. So there's less uh, auto accidents, uh, you know, resulting in, you know, people who could potentially be donors for hearts. So so, you know, that's obviously a good thing, but it does limit the supply of organs. So one of the things I, I talk about in the book is, is an artificial heart an option? And I sort of trace that hit, fascinating history um, and, and, and just the idea that the, the organ that holds our soul, that, that it was supposed to be the, the, the seat of our emotions, could be replaced by uh, a machine made of plastic and, and metal. That was that idea was anathema to, to people, and that actually held off progress on the artificial heart for many, many decades. And then we had the, the Jarvik 7, and there was great promise there, and it seems like it came and went. It came and went because, uh, you know, the, the first patient who was treated with it, Barney Clark, uh, had a horrible uh, suffering death. Uh, he lived for 112 days, but during that time, he never left the hospital. He had strokes. He had infections. So these things are still obstacles, and I talk about, uh, you know, what are the promises, and I try to debunk some of the, the, the um, you know, the, the talk about where technology is leading us. I, I believe, and one of the central messages of the book is that we live better with our own hearts, and, uh, and, and treating our hearts um, involves more than technology, it involves paying attention to our psychologies, our relationships, uh, uh, our, our mental health. All these things are tremendously important when it comes to heart health. Mm. Uh, how much is a person's, you know, a year of their life worth? I was looking at uh, the numbers for defibrillators that are implanted yeah. in the U.S. It says it may be costly. You know, it looks like it's about $40,000. But uh, on average, they extend a patient's life, life by like three years or more. Absolutely. So... You know, if a defibrillator costs, uh, you know, $40,000, uh, and, uh, you know, we typically say that one year of human life, this is what actuaries say, um, is worth about $100,000 to society in terms of productivity, in terms of what, what human beings can accomplish. So a defibrillator at $40,000 is definitely a bargain. But I also talk about some of the downsides of defibrillators. 
the inappropriate shocks. I talk about patients who have, who have who've suffered post-traumatic stress disorder because of defibrillators, but I also talk about the successes. Uh, you know, which patients who should get a defibrillator, which ones would benefit from a pacemaker, uh, and which ones should stay away. The book has been called Affecting, Engaging, and Beautifully Written. It's Heart uh, History. Dr. Sandep Johar. Doctor, thanks for being on our show this morning. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for listening to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories. A production of Intercom Communications. We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for well-qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com.